Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I want to welcome all of you to the Revolutionize Your Retirement Interview with Experts series on the fourth Tuesday of each month. I'm Dory Mincer. I'm owner of Revolutionized Retirement and your host today, and I'm delighted that you're all here. I am so delighted to have Carl Singer, Dr. Carl Singer, with us today. Let me tell you a little about Carl's background and uh, then how I met him. So Dr. Singer graduated from Harvard Medical School in 1967 and completed his training in internal medicine at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston in 1972. Since then, he's practiced as a primary care physician in Exeter, New Hampshire. He continues an active office, he continues an active office-based practice. Excuse me. He's board certified in family medicine and geriatrics, as well as internal medicine, and is a fellow of the American College of Physicians and the American Academy of Family Practice. His interest in older adults began when he joined the staff of Rockingham Nursing Home, which is a 220-bed county facility, and he joined that in 1975. Since 1982, he's also served as medical director of that facility. He's over, he has over 200 publications on a wide variety of medical topics. He's been chairman of the Education Committee at Exeter Hospital for more than 30 years and has taught at Harvard Medical School and Ben-Gurion University in the Negev in Beersheba in Israel. It's quite an extensive and impressive background and resume, and I actually met Carl when he did a presentation at the Life Planning Network in New England, and he and Meg Newhouse, who I know is on the call, her husband and Carl knew each other, and so he did a, this wonderful presentation on pretty much a lot of what he's going to be talking about today, dealing with the second half of life and how to maximize our health, which is the, the focus of today's call. And it was really interesting at that presentation, I went up to him afterwards and I said, I thought it was just a wonderful talk. And I said that I thought some of what he was saying was really describing some issues of my own husband. And then we got to talking and it turned out when I mentioned my husband's name that Carl and my husband had worked together, trained together at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. And then fast forward, last year I was in Exeter, New Hampshire, actually attending a Rosh Hashanah service. And I was had lunch and was talking with his wife and talking about what I do. And she said, oh, my husband's a gerontologist. And we started talking. And finally, I just got a, it clicked when I was giving them a copy of this book that I had co-written. And then I said, wait a minute, I think I heard you speak. <laughs> and so it came full circle. So I just, I love these six degrees of separation sort of thing. We met, we re-met, and then I asked him if he would be my guest, and we picked this date almost a year ago. I am so delighted, Carl, that you are with us today. Welcome. Thank you. I hope you don't mind that I shared that <laughs> more no, no, introduction. It's, 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 uh, I, like you, love the interconnections of life. Yeah. I really love that. So why don't we start with you telling us what was it, if you would, a little about working at that nursing home and what got you interested in in geriatrics? Because there aren't 
that many physicians really in this country that have this as a specialty, and you're very unique and special in that way. <laughs> um, as I say, I moved to Exeter in 1972, and shortly after I arrived here, the medical director of the nursing home asked if I'd start an education program at the nursing home. This was in 1975. And I thought, it's likely that a large part of what I will be involved in my career will be the care of older people and people at the end of life. So why don't I start working there? And so I started just running the education program, and then almost immediately I also became an attending physician there in 1975. So I would spend half a day a week caring for about 50 patients at the nursing home of the 220. And then in 1982, I became the medical director so I was also involved in the administration and planning programs of care. And then in 1988, the specialty of geriatrics began, and you could actually get certified not through going through a fellowship, but based on your career experience. And because of my nursing home experience, I was able to get certification in geriatrics, which I've kept through this day. And I still do the same kind of splitting my life from office practice I used to do hospital practice until 2008 and working at the nursing home half a day a week caring for about 50 to 60 patients and being involved in the administration. So it's given me a real insight into what happens and the, that world has changed enormously. In, in 1975, people would go into a nursing home because they had come out of a state mental hospital or because they were a little bit disabled and lived there for years. And now it's so totally different because the people I care for are mostly in their 80s, 90s, and I always have a few people over 100 that I'm caring for. The whole pattern of diseases has changed, both for these people in the nursing home and for everyone in my practice since I started here in 1972. Well, that I think that will be really interesting for you to maybe elaborate on. And, and let me point out that probably people on the call are in their, I mean, I'm just guessing, but probably 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I don't know if we have people older than that, but I know everybody is really interested in how to maximize health at all in all these different decades and including and the fact that we're all going to be hopefully getting much older, looking at what's to come. Maybe it would be really helpful if you could tell how has the pattern of illness kind of change? What was it like when you began practicing in 72 for people in these different age ranges? And then we can look at how has it changed because that's really over 40 some years. So when I started in 1972, the legislation that had been passed in the Nixon years was the heart disease, cancer and stroke program because those were really the dominant causes of death and disability at that time. Shortly before that, the Surgeon General's report had just been issued about the dangers of smoking. At that point, 40% of the adults in the United States smoked. When I started practice, I used to think people were old when they were about 68 years old, about three years after they started getting Social Security. And there was enormous disability. For example, if you had a cataract, you could have surgery, but they would take the lens out. You'd wear these very thick Coke bottle like glasses with inverted images and couldn't see well. There weren't good hearing aids. 
If you develop severe arthritis of the hip or knee, you could barely walk across the room. If you had a heart attack, look at Dwight Eisenhower, the president in the 50s. He had a heart attack, called in the greatest cardiologist in the country, Paul Dudley White, uh, from Mass General. He still had his second heart attack uh, a few years later and then went into heart failure and died. Basically, you had cancer, which presented in a late state, and we had no treatment. The they had just started a childhood leukemia treatment, but didn't have really chemotherapy for cancer. Just as I started practicing, Hodgkin's disease was one of the first adult cancers that we could treat. People would get devastating strokes. People would have a heart attack and either drop dead or they'd then be disabled by their heart disease. They couldn't walk across the room. So what I really saw was that that people were old, somewhere between 65 and 72, and we really had very few tools to manage these. We could treat things a little bit. Cancer could be treated by surgery and radiation, but we really didn't have drugs. Heart disease, you had your heart attack, and then you were disabled. Often you had a stroke, which left you with major disability. So all of these things were really enormous limits on what could happen to people, what would limit their ability to stay active in their life. It's amazing to think that wasn't that long ago, but you're right that then in your 60s or early 70s, you were really old and that whole paradigm has so shifted now. It's, it is amazing to think, just it's amazing to think about what's yeah. changed over these decades. Talk more though of sort of the progression maybe of how it's changed over these last 40 years because an awful lot has to do with medical advances, it seems to me. Yeah, so the big change is that I now, we've added 20 good years to most people's mm -hmm. lives with decreased disability. So now, uh, and I was just thinking back to a patient I saw yesterday, we were just starting, he's 85, and now he suddenly seems old. And that would have been amazing in 1972. I had very few people who were in their mid-80s, but now... That's really a very common age for me to see people, and it's when I think of people as old. We really have added 20 good years over the course of my professional lifetime to people's lives. And to a large extent, this, is, this reflects really two kinds of things. First of all, we've come up with good solutions for many of the most common disorders. For example, we now do hip replacements or knee replacements, bypass surgery or stents, pacemakers. We put in lenses to help people who are have cataracts. We have much better high-tech hearing aids, and we even do cochlear transplants. All of these things have are single-organ failures for which we've developed technological solutions, and they work extremely well. My dad, for example, after his total hip in his mid-70s, he had always been a tennis player, went back to playing tennis again. When I started, if you got hip arthritis, you could barely walk across the room. The notion that you could go back and play tennis or ski, all those things were things that just were inconceivable when I started practicing. That's certainly one thing that has played an enormous role are the technological solutions that the medical specialties have developed, orthopedic surgery, cardiac surgery, cardiology, ophthalmology, ear, nose, and throat. Each of these 
specialties, mostly surgical, some medical, have developed interventions for single organ failure that really have made an enormous difference. And then the other thing that has really made a difference is our lifestyle is very different. As I mentioned, 40% of people smoked. It's hard for us to think back to what it was like in the 60s when smoking was everywhere. When in the 50s, you could see ads for Lucky Strikes with doctors recommending them because they were smooth. And But even 10 years after I started, there was already an enormous change. The year that I lived in Israel, and I went into doctor's offices and saw ashtrays on the desks in the examining rooms, just seemed totally unbelievable. And now, you virtually almost never see people smoking. We've certainly changed our diet for those people who are interested in health. We exercise a lot more. It's a combination of lifestyle changes and technological interventions that have really made an enormous difference. And I think about my patients and I look at them and I see four or five interventions and then they're out traveling the world or running marathons or just doing amazing things in their 70s and early 80s that we just never would have imagined would have been possible in 1972. It is amazing to think of that, but you're right. When you think now there's smoking bans so many places and it's the exception. When Although I was just recently in Europe and people really still smoke a lot That's there. Right. Yeah but much less in our country. But there does seem to be a different attitude about lifestyle. It it seems some of that started even before this notion of this longevity revolution, but people began exercising more and taking care of themselves in the... When when do you think that started? Like more the 80s or... Yeah, probably not in... Yeah, probably in the 80s. And again, it turns out it's very much social class related. Mm -hmm. It's to some extent, it's age related. For example... For my parents, I could not get any of them to be physically active. But every day now I see people who are starting on the road to type 2 diabetes, and I just spend time. And Again, I actually have in my office to illustrate how much weight they're carrying around. I had a a medical student who gave me a gift at the end of her rotation. It was a 35-pound cinder block. And she said, don't just talk about how much extra weight you're carrying. Ask them to pick it up and imagine carrying it. Using things like that, I have a large number of my patients who reversed type 2 diabetes, had one episode of chest pain and then changed their diet and lifestyle. And it's now 20 years since they had their stent and the heart disease has never come back. So you put them on drugs. So we have also good drugs like the statins, which lower cholesterol, aspirin, and so on, good blood drugs for high blood pressure, and you change your lifestyle. And so you get one warning episode, and you can hold off the progression of diseases that, again, really, there was no way to stop them in the mm-hmm. 1970s. So. Mm-hmm. so it sounds like more of a sense that all of us can have that can't control everything, but there's choices that we can make that really make a difference of a progression or even the development of some disease patterns. For example, I was just reading something today which said that with some of the lifestyle changes we're talking about, we could prevent 80% of the heart attacks. Don't smoke, stay physically active, diet, don't drink to excess. Um, Really, you and this is what I'm seeing is that, for example, because this is the 
what I tell my patients all the time is these kinds of lifestyle changes have an enormous impact. Not that this is not a new message, of course. I, I probably showed you my business card, but my business card is a, is a quotation from Maimonides, who's a, a great uh, Jewish religious scholar, but was also a physician. And, and he said in like 1180, he said, live sensibly. Among a thousand people, only one dies a natural death. The rest succumb to irrational modes of living. But it's been known for centuries that really lifestyle is the key. And that's when patients come to join my practice, that's the business card that I give them. And I say, you're going to hear over and over again that if you want a long, healthy life, free of disability, the, there are, these are the things that you have to do. You have to live and and follow these simple rules about what a healthy lifestyle is. And then attend to medical problems because we have wonderful interventions for most of the major problems that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you've highlighted, too, that it sounds like in your population, I keep hearing the statistic that the over 85 is the fastest-growing segment of our population and that there are going to be more and more people living into their hundreds, 90s and 100s. And it sounds, so is your practice mostly people in their 80s and 90s now? Certainly in the nursing home, that's absolutely the case. That now, because we have better community support and less disability in your 60s and 70s, most nursing home patients are probably in their late 80s or early 90s. And as I mentioned, Mm -hmm. there are even people over 100. And again, I never saw centenarians, people over 100 when I started. And recently, for example, I had a, I went, I saw a name of a new patient I had to see, and I looked and I said, how could that be? I recognize that name, but that was a lady who was working at the nursing home when I started here in 1975, and she was just retiring. And I said, it can't be that lady. And I walked in, and she said, hi, Dr. Singer, do you remember when I was working here with you? And she was 105 years old. <laughs> And that's just unheard of. And Tom Pearls, who's a researcher in Boston, lectured at my hospital about centenarians about 15 years ago. And then I recently invited him back to talk about his research. He says, I'm not studying centenarians anymore. They're too common. I'm studying super centenarians, people over 110 years of age. And he had 50 people in his study that that were between 110 and 115 years of age. Again, this has changed. If you look around the world, like in Japan, the projections for the number of centenarians is just a million by 2050 or something like that. So yeah, so the the whole <coughs> excuse me, the whole age range has changed, and so now the new age that I'm really interested and concerned with is 85 to 100. That's that's where I see the enormous challenge coming up. That that is really going to be tough to deal with. But maybe would it, I wonder if it'd be possible to talk a little about, I want to get into that too, but what's your sense, you said it with the Maimonides quote, but for those on the call hoping to get to 85 and 90, <laughs> what are some of the things, because there's just so many, a number of issues that have, that, that sort of we could go to, but what are the current issues facing people, even in the younger population now, what are some ways to maximize our health so we get to the 80s. And also wondering, with these interventions, are you finding that more and more people are living with kind of disabilities and just learning to manage them better? Um, sure. The 
as I look at the what to recommend, more and more exercise becomes my number one. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the evidence is that exercise, physical activity on a daily basis, and I tell people I, what I try and do in my own life is do 30 minutes five days a week because some days something comes up and I just can't do the 30 minutes, and I ride an exercise bike and do weights and stretchy bands and just walk at work mm-hmm. too. Exercise for me is number one. Stopping smoking, limiting alcohol, men no more than two drinks a day, women no more than one, and controlling your weight and eating a good diet. And a good diet seems to change about every two years, but for me it's lots of fruits and vegetables, mostly a vegetarian, fewer carbs, a little red meat if you want, chicken fish. But right now I eat about 16 vegetarian meals a week and probably have some chicken and fish and then maybe red meat once a week or every other week. And then for medical, treating high blood pressure is probably the single most important intervention. Avoiding diabetes, which is really a consequence of the lifestyle changes. Treating vascular disease if it develops. So that means putting people on cholesterol-lowering drugs and aspirin, treating high blood pressure. Education. If you look at Staying engaged and active. Keep learning and keep learning different things. Stay socially engaged, being an optimist. We all can look at glass being half full or half empty, and being an optimist appears to help. And then a couple of other things, an interesting study that I read once that looked at the healthiest people in their 70s, and they did two things. They took the stairs which to me means they're always looking for ways to being physically active, and they worked for pay. And I don't feel that everybody needs to work for pay, but I think there's a a, a, a nice plus that your what you do is valued, you get positive feedback, you have to be at the top of your game to stay so that somebody keeps wanting to pay you for it. Those are the things that I really talk a lot to people about how how to stay active and engaged. And again, in my own life, one of the things that I do is I play viola in a chamber group. And all of us are in our late, from late 60s to late 70s. And the three of us meet once a month. And we always choose new music to play, music that we've never played before. We really try and challenge our brains to to stay active and engaged. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. It's really terrific advice. I want to integrate a couple of questions from um, some of the listeners right now, which I think Uh tie into it, and then we'll continue. Heather, who's in uh, Nova Scotia, who's a physician who's become a wellness coach, asks a a few questions. Let me just read some of what she has here. She says she's giving a six-week course on maximizing cognition over the lifespan, diet, mental stimulation, exercise, socialization, spirituality, medication. And I know we're going to get into this area about the brain, but she just says the brain seems to be the last domain. And she wondered if you're going to be able to comment on that. And I realized I should have probably read this a little before because I know we're going to talk about some of the comments, but we can move into it a bit now. And so she wanted to know if you could comment a little on maintaining cognition since it's so critical and with other diseases are being controlled, what can we do in terms of the cognition? And also she wondered about your sense of the overuse of sedatives, which seem to be related to dementia. 
and also the issue of obesity and that lifestyle. She totally agrees with you that lifestyle is so critical, but it's not so easy sometimes to get people to change lifestyle issues. And she wondered how you and your role as a physician get people or help people make these lifestyle changes. Let me start with her question first, then I'll go to another one. Again, some of the things that I've done, first of all, I use myself as an example. I say, I walked by that extra cycle for about 10 years. And then one day I said to myself, this is stupid. You just need to figure out a way to get this into your life. And so for me, what I did was I discovered something called the Teaching Company, which is a company that puts out DVDs with wonderful courses on anything you want from Michelangelo and excuse me, Leonardo to the Middle Ages to religion to mathematics. So what I do is I just take a course while I'm exercising. So that worked out well, and I discovered for me, first thing in the morning. Diet, mostly I've, again, I talk to people about, my weight went up about 20 pounds maybe 15 years ago, and I said, this isn't good. And so I tell them what I did. The first thing I did is I was, we, there was a wonderful place nearby that made homemade apple cider, and I loved it. But I decided that was just sugar water. And I said, okay, I'm going to just switch to zero-calorie beverages. And then I looked at a variety of other things. Bread sandwiches don't need two slices of bread. They can have one slice cut in half, increased fruits and vegetables. A lot of what I do is actually talk about my own journey and try and tell them how I integrated what I learned into making the changes for myself. And so for obesity, it's really diet and exercise. For cognition, I definitely think keeping learning. So again, I talk to people about what I do with the chamber music, with the taking the courses, and that's so easy now between iTunes U and Coursera and edX. You can take a course on anything you want from the comfort of your own home while you're exercising. So I've got about eight courses lined up, China, History of China, doing one on geometry now. I think all these are things that I try and teach by example, plus talk about the research that really backs up uh, these kind of lifestyle changes. That's, those are excellent suggestions, and I think you're right. So much of it is can be the role model aspect of it. Let me ask you another question. So Marjorie from Somerville says that in the 90-plus study, one of the findings was that low blood pressure in older people is a source of strokes. And she's wondering, at what age is low blood pressure a concern for that? Should people be concerned about it when they're 40s, 50s, 60s, what? No, I think if if your blood pressure is low, naturally, in other words, not because you're taking drugs, it's probably a good thing for most of your life, maybe even for all of your life. What we found is, as with so many things, we ended up moving the goal lines further and probably over-treating people. For example, now, although we used to talk about starting treatment when the systolic blood pressure was 140, And then for some people, the target was like below 120. We found that people were actually causing problems like falls or problems with brain injury with driving the blood pressure too low with drugs. Now, in the last eight months or so, the new guidelines say for people over 60, don't initiate blood pressure medication unless the systolic is above 150. 
and don't and your target is simply to make it below 150. So we've actually loosened the guidelines and it's similar problems with cancer treatment with over treatment of particularly prostate cancer and we've changed our goals with treating cholesterol. There's a whole lot of areas where I don't think like with blood pressure untreated low blood pressure is a big problem. It's more that we overtreated things in the let's say the 90s in the first decade of the 2000s, and now we're backing off, realizing that our treatment has problems. Just as the other person said, the sedatives. I really mm -hmm. try and get people in their 80s and 90s off, like the anti-anxiety agents like Ativan or uh, Valium, because I think those may very well contribute. In fact, a study just a couple weeks ago that said, it uh, doubles the risk of having Alzheimer's disease. Uh, again, the more you can do things naturally, learn relaxation, learn meditation, do yoga, tai chi, rather than taking medication that, that affects brain function. Because brain function, I agree, is the total new frontier. That's really the two issues that I see that we don't have good answers for right now are brain failure and frailty. And to me, those are the big issues. And that's what really comes to the fore for people in their mid-80s and 90s. You don't have as much energy. And my way of showing that to people is say, think about energy as a, as a liquid that's in a glass. And when you're 20, you've got a glass full of energy and you dump it out and it takes four minutes to refill it. And when you're 40, it's 60% full and it might take four hours. And when you're 80, it's 10% full and it might take four months to refill that glass. And we don't understand what energy is. We can eat well, but we can't manufacture whatever it is. And that's part of what happens. The brain certainly fails. We see dementia now. Although, again, the latest statistics suggest that we're see going to see less of it in the younger generations, primarily because of treatment of vascular disease, higher levels of education and the lifestyle changes we've been talking about. It isn't inevitable that we're going to see it, but it's still an enormous problem. And then frailty, which is this, I can't climb a flight of stairs, I can't walk across a room, we can't manufacture muscle cells. To me, those are the real issues that I'm struggling with. And part of the problem in researching them is that they don't have single interventions like putting in a stent or doing a hip replacement. And the only people that are really interested are geriatricians, and there are almost none of them. Geriatrics is a specialty where if you take three more years of training, your income goes down because <laughs> you are only paid for paid by Medicare because everyone who's a geriatric patient is a Medicare patient, and the fees for Medicare are so low. So almost nobody is going into ger geriatrics. Only there are only about 400 residency slot or fellowship slots, and only about 200 of them are filled. And about half of those are filled by international medical graduates. So only about 100 graduates of American medical schools every year choose to go into geriatric. So we have very few people researching, and the problems are complex. For example, with dementia, we're st we have all these ideas about amyloid or tau or different kinds of things, but I heard a researcher from Mass General speak a couple weeks ago, and we don't even know if those ideas are right. I see the investment that the administration is trying to make in this brain initiative enormously important because until we understand what the problem is, we can't start to design 
treatments. And my hope is that 10 or 15 years from now, just as we came to understand how lowering cholesterol can prevent vascular disease or prevent the progression, we'll understand what are the key trigger factors for dementia, for example, and be able to, through lifestyle changes or medical interventions, prevent the progression of this problem. Uh, but it's, it's inter- go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, there's no surgical fix. There's no single drug that works for frailty and dementia. And those are the real problems that I see now. And they're mostly in people over the age of 85. So 85 to 100 now is the new frontier where we see a whole host of other problems. For example, in the patient I saw yesterday, his wife has died. She had dementia. He's by himself. He has two older, two elderly sisters who live about 30 miles away, and he has a daughter that lives in Florida. And he's trying to decide at age 85, should I still live in my own house or should I move? And if I move, where should I move? Should I move to my daughter in Florida, to a totally new environment? Should I move closer to my sisters who are close to my age and may not be able to help me? I want to stay in my house, but is it reasonable as I become weaker and more frail and might fall to stay in the house. So this is the conversation that I have with my patients is where do you want to live? When do you want to move? And what are the issues that come up in the mid to late 80s that are so totally different from what now are no longer really issues or disabilities? Because most of my patients in their 60s and 70s and early 80s are not disabled. You look out, you look at the people running 5K races, or you look at the travel agencies that have blossomed in the last 20 years because people in their 70s and 80s want to travel to the far corners of the earth. And so we don't see the disability there, but we now are really starting to see it in their 80s and 90s, but it's quite different than what we saw when I started practice and people in their 70s, in their 60s and 70s. Before we go on, let me just, I I have gotten a couple of comments from people. I know there's a clicking sound. I tried changing my phone and I don't, but I, and it's not typing. The only typing is when I click because I have to refresh to get questions. I just want to apologize that I know there is a little bit of a clicking sound in the background and I think we may just need to, I'm just not sure that there's a way to remedy that. So I just did want to respond to to people because I know a few people have said that it's distracting. I'm trying to hold my phone in different ways, (laughs) but it's not seeming to make any difference. I'm not sure it's from my phone. And I don't think that it's from your headset because everyone can hear you very clearly, Carl. It just may be a little something on the phone. But can you, what you're saying is just, it's just so important and trying to think about, so part of what's so hard, it sounds, is when you're in your 60s and 70s and, and feeling fine, it's hard to anticipate what what's going to happen in the 70s and 80s. And I wonder, are there ways that you talk with people or just even, I'm just thinking you've talked about balance and frailty and all, and I'm even aware, I'm in my late 60s, and I'm aware I have to be a little bit more cognizant when I'm coming downstairs now, or, and I, I ride bikes and I exercise and I'm active and stuff, but I begin to see changes and trying to figure out what are there some kind of good preventative ways in addition to, I think you're, I totally agree with the lifestyle things, but just in terms of the physical 
parts? Are there things you're finding from your work helpful for people as we approach or are already in for some people on the call? Or I know people are in their 70s and 80s. What are some ways to help maximize coordination, balance, some of those things? Obviously, doing a variety of exercise. And for me, it's biking and weights. And then, although I haven't done it myself, there are good studies about Tai Chi and balance. I think that's a specific kind of thing that when I have a little more time, that's something I want to do for myself is to try and go to some Tai Chi classes just to learn ways in which I can help with balance and muscle strength. But there are certainly exercise programs. I know my wife is involved in one of them where you exercise every muscle group. So you really try and work at doing that for everything. So exercise really comes down to the main thing. Obviously, eating reasonable diet, balanced lots of fruits and vegetables. I'm not sure what else you can do early on. Again, but just try and do a whole variety of things so that you really work on staying as as fit as possible and being able to manage in most situations. And then the other thing I really start doing with people in their 70s is asking them to think about where they would want to move. And that's a really tough decision. First of all, we all, almost all of us have geographically dispersed families. We like to live in our own space. We want to be independent, but like in New Hampshire, if you can't drive, there's no public transportation here. Once you lose the ability to drive, that's a huge problem. Caring for a house becomes a real burden in your early 80s. If the roof leaks or you get a, the furnace breaks, trying to get three bids and bring in workmen, these are all things which are just too complicated. Where do we live? <clears throat> and right now, so many of our solutions are ones that don't, aren't I'm not so happy with. For example, ones that separate the generations. Most senior living communities, over 55 communities, keep young people out. And we've, I think we've got to find ways to keep young and old people together. Mm-hmm. We've got many more people with no children. And how do you manage when you're 85 and you have no children? That's a, an enormous challenge, assuming that you and your children get along. Uh, but so these are things that I think about for myself too. Where would mm-hmm. I move when I become 83 years old? Do I want to mm-hmm. live in a senior continuing care community? Do I want to live in a condominium? Do I want to move near one of my children? So these are all things that I ask people in their 70s to start thinking about. Another thing that I've seen very clearly, the lifestyle that's happened over the last 30 years of snowbirds, of people going from New England to Florida for six months of the year, is a a lifestyle that works for people in their 60s and 70s, but it's increasingly difficult once you get into your 80s. One, to travel. Two, to maintain two residences. And three, to pick up and get going in in your new place. So mostly what I see is people, once they get to be about 80, say, I'm either going to stay north or south and give up the six months and six months. And I'm sure that's true also for Phoenix, for Arizona, and and some of the other places too. That lifestyle works when you've got the energy. Same thing with travel. There are certain kinds of travel that you can do in your 60s and 70s, but just become unrealistic in your late 70s. So I, and I had my epiphany there. I was at the theater in London one night, and 
A couple next to me said, we just turned 75 and we used to be able to walk four hours a day and we can only walk two hours a day. I really emphasize to people that if you want to do independent travel, taking your own suitcases and so on, you'd better do that by your mid-70s. You can still travel, but most of the time it'll be easier if you travel with a group. Somebody else is responsible for taking your luggage and things like that. These are all things you really have to realize that, that physically, no matter how hard you work, there are going to be increasing limitations. And even the most fit people who run marathons, once you get to be 75, you can never match your best time. There, mm. Those are things that no matter how hard you train, we simply can't overcome. You've just got to be aware of where these cut points are, and they're mostly in their there's some physical limitations by mid-70s and then a huge amount by your mid-80s. And it's so important to hear you say this because I, I do think that it's so easy when we're feeling at our prime in our 60s and even 70s to just realize that we just have to face the reality that no matter what you do, we all are aging and there are there are changes. So I think it's a good dose of reality to hear this. I just wanted to comment, too. I just had this experience. My husband and I just came back from actually a bicycle trip and also walking, and he's in his early 80s, and I'm in my late 60s. And two things. One, there are these electric assist bikes now, which are fabulous because they do help you when there are a lot of hills so that if your balance is good and you can ride, there are some ways to help. But this other harsh awakening was in Italy, at least, and I've heard that it's in many places in Europe. You can't rent a car if you're over 75. And that was a harsh awakening for my husband when he put his license up there and they said, no, we can't. I had rented it under my name, but they wouldn't put him down as an additional driver. So there, there are things that we get confronted with that we have to deal with. He was, it seems, whatever, it's just, it's part of the reality of what happens as right. we get older and how people perceive us or and what we're able to do. So I, I'm, I think it's so important you're saying this, just that no matter how healthy we are, there are some changes we have to uh, adapt to and think about. A couple more questions have come in that I want to throw in here. Meg from Weston wanted you to just, if you could elaborate a little more, you've talked a little about it, but she says one of her concerns is maintaining a positive attitude and ways to be of use and service despite frailty and other functional losses such as dementia. And she just wondered if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more on on how you try to work with some of your patients in the 80s and 90s to try to maintain a positive attitude in the face of these losses. Sure. One of the, my real role models is my aunt who was a very uh, wonderful woman. She was a lawyer at a time when almost no, there were six women in her law school class. And until she had a stroke at age 84, every year she would seem, she would find a new thing to do. So one year it was reading to children in school. One year it was working with AARP to help with taxes. Then she had lifelong passions in preserving the natural environment. One year she might help with a, a yard sale to raise money. There are always ways to get involved in the world. One of the things that I read about recently that I really like, there's a continuing care community in Boston called Newbridge on the Charles. And one of the things that they did was they allowed a school to be built on the campus, kindergarten through grade six, and they invite 
the older people, the older residents of the facility to come in and assist at the school. And to me, one of the big things that you need to do is to, to keep to get the energy and the joy and the open-mindedness mm-hmm. of young people. So one of the things I do <coughs> ever since I've been in Exeter, because I play viola, which is an instrument that there aren't very many people that play, I joined. I was I asked if I could join the orchestra at Phillips Exeter Academy. And I've been fortunate enough to play there for the last 42 years, and I'm the only I'm the only senior member of an orchestra that has kids 15 to 18 years of age, and it's it's so exciting to go in and see them and explore the music with them. And another thing that I'm going to do is I'm very interested in helping kids who are gifted in math, and so I've started I've done teaching of some individuals and. In, including some of my grandchildren, but I'm going to be going to the local school and trying to work with kids who are gifted in math to show them the incredible connectedness and beauty of mathematics. So I think one of the things that you can do, obviously volunteering in many different ways, but particularly trying to keep an attachment to young people because Mm -hmm. I think you get so much hope and joy and excitement and energy from them. So that's certainly one of the things that I'm trying to do. And You're a wonderful right. role model, yeah. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, you really are. And the in, I just totally agree, this intergenerational connection so important. And Meg had another question, too, which, what is your opinion about the alternative integrative medications for some of these conditions? I'm At this point, I'm not convinced that most of them are really valuable. To me, the things that I really emphasize are exactly what I talked about. Exercise, don't smoke, don't drink to excess, and eat a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables, mostly vegetarian, small amount of red meat, some fish and chicken. And those are the things that that I think are the most valuable. And then challenge your brain, stay socially connected. And I just not found that most of the complementary medications, when used in trial like ginkgo biloba, really have evidence to back up their use. Probably the only things that I do recommend, I think, small amounts of vitamin D. It's been hard to prove that they're valuable, but maybe up to 1,000 international units. I don't like people taking 5,000 or 3,000. Maybe some calcium, particularly if you can't get enough natural calcium through milk and yogurt. But other than that, I, I was in the physician's health study from 1982 till 2008, and we took a whole variety of things, vitamin E, beta carotene, a multivitamin, nothing really turned out to be very useful. I was subject in that because I wanted to see what a clinical trial was like and what it was like to take medicines at a time I didn't take medicine. And we tried a whole lot of things over the 30-some-odd years of the trial. And so I really... I think most of them are not dangerous, but I haven't seen much evidence, and I don't recommend them. I really put my effort in the four things that I've talked about. Mm-hmm. Great. I had another question from Marjorie from Somerville, who asked if you could speak a little bit more about the use of statins in older women. And she also asked, what's meant by, quote, older? And also, what do you think of the more recent findings that sugar and carbs are the concern and not cholesterol? I'll do the second one first. I've always really not been so much concerned about fats, but about carbs and sugar and artificial sweeteners too. 
I've really tried to emphasize decreasing those. And I think we're going to find that's probably, in terms of optimal diet, not be so concerned about fat and be more concerned about sugar and carbs. Statins, I find, is an enormously difficult area. I've heard lots of talks. I think about it in my own life. One of the problems now is that the risk predictors for vascular disease are so heavily weighted by age that almost everybody, certainly men over 60, women over 65, even in the absence of vascular disease, should be taking a statin. And I just think that's too many people that are taking statins because I think eventually we'll find that there may be some side effects. Now, people who have known vascular disease, so if you've had a heart attack or a stent or a stroke or a blockage in your legs, those people all should be on statins because they've already proven that they have the disease and we know statins prevent progression. But the real issue, who is <clears throat> who should receive statins for primary prevention? That is people without disease. And I'm pretty cautious, particularly in women, because a lot of women have high levels of HDL or good or protective cholesterol. And so for those women, I tend not to put them on statins. I don't have a lot of women... Lesser total cholesterol is over 300, which is really at the top 2%. So I try not to give most women who are, don't have vascular disease statins. And what do I mean by old? I guess for me now, <coughs> old is over 85. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that's why I think if 65 to 85 is mature, I don't know what the right word is. But I don't really think of people as old in my practice now until they get to be 85. And then I really see an enormous change just like this man I saw yesterday in the office. Up until a year ago, he was walking, vigorous, and now all of a sudden he seems shrunken, a little bit unsteady, climbing onto the table, and he just turned 85. And for me now, somewhere between 82 and 87 is old. That's the age where I see the, our enormous challenges is to maintain quality. And I, I, had a, <clears throat> I met a, a woman who was visiting her grandmother, and I said, I saw her on, after she had visited her, I said, what, what's your grandmother? She said, what do you have to say? She said, I like the 80s, but I'm not so sure about the 90s. And I think that's, again, that's where we're at right now, that we can give most people a really good lifestyle. They take care of themselves and seek medical care through about 82, 87 Almost nobody in their 90s escapes from some kind of major limitation. Mm-hmm. In a minute, I want you to ex- expand on that a little, but a couple of other things from our listeners. But I also want to comment that so much of what you're talking about, too, really highlights what I've read, like in positive psychology, that being, and I extrapolate that to successful aging is connection, engagement, and purpose and meaning. And I think so much of what you've been talking about highlights that. But Jan from Yarmouth said that you haven't really mentioned creative expression as an element of healthy aging. And she just wonders because and if you're aware of Jean Cohen's research on the role of creative expression as we age. I'm not sure what that means. I think of, for me, music is is Mm -hmm. my sort of creative, but art, poetry, all of these Mm -hmm. things, diaries, I think those are all wonderful ways to challenge yourself. And again, I I was reminded that we were in in London this summer, and we went to the Tate Modern Museum, and there were two wonderful exhibits. One was a a large exhibit of Matisse cutouts. And Matisse... (laughs) both because of frailty 
he was confined to a wheelchair and visual problems, couldn't do paintings. But in his late 60s, he started doing cutouts. And he has this wonderful body of work that there was a whole show devoted to, of work that he did between 68 and 80 with the beautiful cutouts of the nymphs and so on, with the blue paper and so on. And then we also went in to see an exhibit of Louise Bourgeois, who's known as a sculptress. But it turned out that she went back to doing drawing, painting, when she was in her late 80s. And there were a couple of pictures done. She died at 99, and there were a couple of pictures in the show, which were wonderful, done when she was 98 years old. And it was just so exciting for me to see these artists who had gone in one direction through much of their career making this sharp turn in, from their late 60s to their early 80s, and then having a 10 to 15-year period of enormous creativity in a totally different medium and doing really wonderful work. And that was so inspiring to me. And mm -hmm. if that's what she means, I absolutely agree that we've got to get to that side of our mind and our person to make to do this kind of exploration. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when you say for you now, when you see your patients that now when people are 82 or 85 and older, they're seeming to be older or even more in their 90s. And much of the current writing is that there's this extended middle age now, which is more like 50 to 75 or 80. And right. so then the fourth stage is more of the mid to late 80s and onward. What about sleep? Meg's raised that also. And I, I, there's so much written about problems of insomnia starting really in mid-age. But what's your notion of the amount of sleep people need? And does it change as we get older? And what are some of the ways you help people with some of the sleep issues? That's a tough one that, again, yeah. I don't think we have really good solutions. It's clear that, that older people sleep like babies. We don't sleep as deeply. We wake up more. Partly that's because of the way the brain is functioning. Partly it's because we have to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Almost everybody in their 70s gets up once or twice at at night because the bladder tells them they have to get up. Then falling back asleep can be a real problem. And we really, I try not, as I mentioned, try to stay away from the usual sleeping pills like Ambien or the anti-anxiety agents that sometimes people use because I think those have long-term cognitive effects. Physical activity, meditation, yoga, ways in which to turn your mind off that's certainly what I do is to just basically I have a word for me. It's float. And when my mind starts going, I just say float, float, float. So I just try and block that out of my mind just to get myself into this trance state really to, to allow me to go back to sleep. I think exercise helps. I encourage people to try and get seven to eight hours of sleep, uh, mm -hmm. but I don't think we have a good answer about that. I think that's a whole area where I don't think there's a whole lot of research. Mm -hmm. What about when, another question that has come in is, when do you recommend that women be checked for osteoporosis? And do you see, are you seeing that as something that becomes more problematic also as people are aging? Yeah, certainly the recommendation is to do it, to do a bone density scan at age 65 unless there's premature menopause. But I'd say most of my patients get bone density scans probably in their 50s around the time of menopause. 
I'm certainly happy to encourage everyone to do weight-bearing exercise, adequate calcium, and vitamin D. I have some concerns about the drugs that we now use because, again, they're drugs that stick around for a really long time, by long time, years, maybe even decades, drugs like Fosamax. And since the studies only go for a few years and we don't really follow people out for 10 or 15 or 20 years and we're starting them in their 50s or early 60s, I have some real concerns about those drugs. And so if I do start them, I really try to stop them after four or five years because there's good evidence that they stick around and still have benefit. But I'm reluctant to do primary prevention unless the risk is extremely high. So in people with just moderate bone loss, not through osteoporosis, but intermediate bone loss, I almost always just recommend lifestyle changes. And a large part of it is if you don't fall, you're not going to break your bones. So again, balance and strength Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to me are things that uh, can't be bad for you. Mm -hmm. That's what I really put my emphasis on. I look for osteoporosis, and I certainly have people who once they've fractured, um, don't hesitate to use drugs because they've shown themselves it's just like statins with vascular disease. It's the primary prevention where you have to treat hundreds, 50, 100, 200 people with drugs and expose them to the risks for the one person who might benefit. Mm -hmm. A lot of really important food for thought. A few more questions. Heather wondered if you could discuss a little about the issue of paid work versus volunteer work, because you had mentioned about feeling like feeling valued is so important, and she just wondered if it was true about paid versus volunteer. This is one one study I saw, and I thought it was an interesting study, but I think so many of my patients find meaning and value in volunteer mm-hmm. work. So I never, I always encourage them to get involved, just like I'm going to be right. volunteering at my local school. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be enormously uh, rewarding, I hope. But I think if you can find a way to get paid, it's just another little thing that might help in terms of positive feedback. And also, you absolutely have to stay at the top of your game. So it, it gives you a push to stay doing a really good job. Uh, you have to find something that you love and that uh, the hours and the demands don't exceed what you can do. Most people probably are not going to be working 40 hours a week at manual labor in their 70s. Right. But if you can find something that's 15 hours a week, I have, I have a wonderful lady who's 93 years old now and she does bookkeeping for one company. It takes her two hours a week, but she just loves it. It's just that little thing where she has to keep her mind engaged, where she knows every week that she has to be up for that period of time. And I think that's just, there's a little added benefit, but I think lots of retirement and maybe that what you really want to do that you love, there are no paid opportunities. Absolutely. I encourage volunteer work to be with people and to get rewarded. Jan, who's on the call, I love her comment, which she talks about work paid or unpaid until your final breath. Uh-huh. It's part of what gives can give purpose and meaning to life, and I often use her quote when I'm giving talks. A couple right. more things from people, and then I had a couple other questions, and I just want to say I, I am aware that it's we, we've gone a bit over time, and Carl has graciously agreed that he had a little bit more time to talk about issues. 
So another question, Heather just asked when you were mentioning not believing very much in most of the supplements, fish oil, omega-3, what's your sort of sense on that? I don't feel strongly about it. I, I do encourage people to have fish a couple times a week at least. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's one of those things I've had a hard time deciding one way or another. I don't think it's dangerous, but it's not clear to me how helpful it is. To me, it's just it's an open question. And when patients ask me, I say, try it for six months if you have some endpoint that you're looking at. It's the same thing with glucosamine in, in people with joint pain. Uh, I don't think the evidence is great, but it doesn't appear harmful. And you find an endpoint, decide whether you think it's helping. Don't commit mm-hmm. yourself to five years of treatment. Mm-hmm. That's helpful to hear. Also, a comment from Marjorie. She just commented that the Matisse cutouts are currently on exhibit at the Peabody Essex Museum, huh? just for those that live in the Northeast. Also, she just said when commenting on sort of your comment about sleep, she finds that listing gratitudes is a helpful way to return to sleep. So it's tied into getting oneself focusing on positives and, as you say, float. But a comment on that. But I wanted to shift a little to just a few more minutes about the new challenges facing people with dementia and frailty. It was interesting that you said you think younger people are going to have less issue with some of that. But I was at ASA a number of years ago, and I remember Ken Dykewald. We were in a room, and he was giving a talk, and he said, look around around, one out of each two of you are going to end up with dementia if you live till you're 85, which was quite sobering. Could you speak a little bit more about what you're seeing in the area of whether it be dementia or Alzheimer's, any form of dementia, and what's happening in that field? What are the barriers to dealing with it? What are the challenges that we have? It's such a a scary area as we think about getting older. The data on the decreasing number of cases is really only in the last six months or a year. It's all very new data looking at the number of new cases in people, let's say, in their 70s, looking nationwide. There are, I think it's five years ago, it was, it's going to get, it's a bad problem and it's going to get worse. And there was this hopelessness about it. But we do know now that there are these behavioral things. The things we've talked about, exercise, diet, don't smoke, don't take sedatives, stay intellectually engaged, stay socially engaged, which probably can give you some brain reserve and decrease it. Right now, there's no treatments. The drugs that we have, I think, are almost worthless. I hardly ever use them. They may delay onset of transition to nursing home by six months. But there's this huge commitment of money and energy and they say we had a speaker from Mass General talk about what they're doing to look at both people with genetic Alzheimer's disease, like there's a group in Columbia that get Alzheimer's in their 40s, and then people with high-risk genetics where they're looking in their 50s and doing MRI, functional MRIs and things like that to, to try and figure out, are there treatments that may prevent the progression of the pathologies. I'm optimistic that within the next 10 to 15 years, we may have ways of identifying people early on, whether through brain scans or blood tests in their 50s and 60s, and have interventions that might prevent, whether it's beta amyloid or tau. But 
Mm-hmm. We're not there now. We don't even know, really, honestly, what the pathology is. I think the lifestyle changes are really very important. It seems like that's the main area. Do you find it harder for people to deal with these issues of the cognitive impairments, or um... you mean family members or patients yeah. themselves? Both. I okay. Often patients themselves happen. aren't yeah. too aware of it. Some of my patients have said, I just know that I'm failing things I used to be able to do. But it's very hard to be a caregiver for somebody with Alzheimer's disease because they keep asking the same questions. And then eventually, <coughs> the things that trigger nursing home placements, the things that people really have a hard time with, are wandering or incontinence. Mm-hmm. Uh, or hallucination. When the disease progresses to that stage, almost no one could be a caretaker at home. Those mm-hmm. are the people who now are ending up in my nursing home. Mm-hmm. People who are fairly advanced. But we don't have a lot. We have you know, we do have some adult daycare so people can have some free time. There are some home care programs. But I think there that's an area where we just... Our medical care system is so designed to treat with acute illnesses and even chronic illnesses that we can treat with drugs that ones that require support to families as caregivers, we don't really have good ways yet of doing that for most people. Mm-hmm. Well, that's also very sobering, too, but it's true. And I guess I sometimes hear and see families trying so hard to keep people at home, and it's just so difficult when it's... 24-7 care that you need, and right. I think it is important to recognize, and maybe there's a hope that, I know many places are beginning to develop more of these memory care units, but mm-hmm. we have a long way to go in our country, I think, to have good programs for people. One of the things that I say to families is, on my nursing home, the nurses only work eight-hour shifts. You're working 24-7, and it's no wonder that you're getting burned out, because I spend a lot of time emphasizing mm-hmm. that I worry about caregiver burnout because as a family doc, I take care of both spouses. And so I worry as much about the caretaker and the impact on their health. So mm-hmm. I, I really try and take, because they feel guilty. I can't give him enough. And I say, look, the nurse goes home after eight hours. Mm-hmm. You're staying for the second shift and the third shift too. And no wonder mm-hmm. you're exhausted. Well, that's a nice way to put it, to put that reality perspective into it. Yeah. Another question from Heather here who says, she says, you seem to be so much more positive about dementia, but she really wonders because there's such a high incidence of obesity in the United States. And is there some, does there seem to be some relationship or correlation between obesity and dementia? I don't know. Really, I I haven't thought about that, whether obesity, obesity is an inflammatory condition, and maybe it does. I just haven't seen any statistics on that. Not that I'm not worried about obesity. Most of my practice is devoted towards caring for people with type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, so I spend a huge amount of time dealing with it. But I'm not aware of a, a relationship between obesity and dementia. Uh, I'll be interested to look it up. Uh, I'm sure you can just mm-hmm. ask Google and, and get the answer in about 30 seconds. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> but I'm I very another, worried about oh. obesity, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And are you okay. seeing more of that with the – you oh, gave yeah. some examples of with the diabetes of the how one can really control it. But right. you're seeing a lot of obesity-related medical illnesses? Oh, most of my day is spent caring for people with diseases that if they would only exercise and lose 
15 pounds, mm-hmm. I could cut their drug burden in half. Mm-hmm. So most of my counseling is trying to figure out how to get people more active and change the way they eat. Because mm-hmm. no, none of my patients, almost none of my patients smoke anymore, and most of them mm-hmm. don't drink to excess. Those are problems that have gone by the, not totally disappeared in my population, but mm-hmm. the the real problem is lack of physical activity and too many calories and the wrong kind mm-hmm. of calories. Mm-hmm. Are you finding a lot of depression and anxiety also with people giving up or just not? It's tied in, I think, a little bit to, to Meg's question earlier of just helping people have a good attitude even in the face of the losses. I, I don't see so much in my practice. I, again, there are places where it is. Mm-hmm. I think partly because as a medical student, I did a research project on depression, and I spent a whole summer learning about depression, and I think it just got me as an individual tuned into it. And mm-hmm. so most of my patients, I think, are actually doing pretty well mm-hmm. in terms of medication, or I always emphasize that if you are physically active, there's a good chance we can cut your depression medicine by 50%. And I have one person, I tell them, that played hockey five days a week, and he stopped his antidepressants mm-hmm. as long as he played hockey five days a week. Now, I don't mm-hmm. expect most of you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I definitely, and this is something I've been telling people for 20 years, and again, now there's very good controlled trials of assigning people to exercise or not exercise as well as antidepressant medicine. And the, the exercise really improves the decreases the amount of medicine that you need. I keep coming mm-hmm. back to exercise. And in yeah. fact, our, the lecture we had this year at our Grand Rounds at our hospital was titled, Exercise is Medicine. You should mm-hmm. prescribe it for mm-hmm. this list of 27 different medical problems. Mm-hmm. And then you would have to write for pills. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember a quote from Robert Butler. I can't remember in which of his books, but it was something about if exercise could be in a pill, it would be the most prescribed pill around or some kind of thing exactly. like Exactly. I totally yeah. agree with that. Right. And I say yeah. this is what this lecture, he just said, here's a list of all the things that you see every day mm-hmm. that you can treat. Right. So you absolutely should prescribe exercise. I think we need to pull it together. I do want to comment that Marjorie said, sorry, that it's not at the Peabody Essex Museum, but the Matisse cutouts are at MoMA. She just wanted to clarify that. For those of you who are in New York or going to New York, <laughs> that it's in MoMA. Any last, This has just been wonderful, Carl. I just I thank can't you. thank you enough. It's There's just so many things to think about. Any other kind of final takeaways of ways we can think about maximizing our health now so that we can hopefully be healthy and as vital as we can into our 80s, 90s, 100s. I hear loudly that by 90 at least, some things are going to catch up with us or maybe by mid-80s. I find that important to know. And for some people, it's probably happened sooner. I always am impressed with this statistic. I don't know if you probably have heard it too, that I've read that by the time you're 65, it's about 30% genes and then 70% is all these other things, lifestyle, attitude, exercise, spirituality, purpose and meaning. There's some parts we can control, but so any final thoughts on just ways to think about maximizing our aging? Basically, I just go back to Maimonides. I think he said, 
live sensibly. 199 people die of irrational modes of living. And, and it's, again, because of, we'll hear about Maimonides in the coming days because he's, he contributed to, to the holidays and the, right. the things we talk about. So I love to go back to him because that's a connection over 800 years. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's really the key is to live sensibly. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good ending to have to, for all of us to keep that in mind of living sensibly and control the parts we can. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing such wisdom and you really are such a wonderful role model and it's I think it's so helpful to hear how you use your own journey and living in helping your patients and I think it's important to think about ways that all of us can think about living our life as fully as we can and being role models for the younger generation because that's how they're going to learn a little about kind of the wisdom that comes with those of us as we age. And Carl, thank you so much. And for those of you... Thank you. All right. Take care, everybody, and see you next month. Thanks. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com.